The following message was recorded Sunday, January 7, 2024. Pastor Ritt continues his series in the book of Acts. This morning we cover Acts chapter 9 verses 1 through 9. Who was Saul and what happened to him on the road to Damascus? Can the same thing happen to us? Let's find out. And now, here's Pastor Ritt. But right now we're back in our study in the book of Acts, and where do we leave off? Where? The end of chapter 8, that's right. So we're going to go to chapter 9, but let's just do a little rehearsal in chapter 8. We're going to be introduced to this man called Saul, Saul, who was also called Paul, Paul. Now, the first introduction to Saul is found in chapter 7, isn't it? If you look at chapter 7, look at verse 58. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. This was Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul. This is the first mention of Saul. Later, he's going to be called Paul repeatedly. When was his name changed? It wasn't changed. Chapter 13 for a moment. Go there. You see, sometimes we think we know more than we really do. Hmm? Yeah. Rather than to go to the text and make sure we understand what the text is saying. Hmm? Yeah. And Caleb, don't worry. You're in the front row. You're safe. I pick on the people in the back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, chapter 13, verse 9. What does it say? Look with me. Then Saul, who was also called, filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is after his conversion, but he was Saul, also called Paul. Okay, so how do you understand that, that he was Saul, but he was Paul? Is he Paul or is he Saul? Is it an S or is it a P? You're, 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 well, no, not exactly. You're close. He had a Hebrew name, and he had a Roman Gentile name. His Hebrew name was Saul. Saul, and what a powerful name that was. Why? The first king from what tribe? Benjamin, right, exactly where Paul was from. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Name was Saul. But his Roman name was Paul, which means little. So he, was, he was probably born a little fella, and they called him Paul, which is little. You know, I, I probably should have been named Paul, you know, short in stature, right? Tell me what you know about the Apostle Paul or this man named Saul. A Pharisee. He was, he was born a Jew and he was born into the house of a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. He was a son of a Pharisee. And he stud, studied under the strictness of the law being a Pharisee, right? What else do you know about him? I'm sorry? He studied under Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was called the beauty of the law. Do you know why? It said when, when Gamaliel expounded upon the scripture, he brought out the beauty of God's word. And boy, that, we surely hope that the Holy Spirit does that for each of us every time we get into the word, right? But the beauty of the word is what Gamaliel was called. He was the principal teacher at that time, and Paul was one of his principal students. One of the things he said about Paul is he couldn't keep enough manuscript in his hands. You young people, you should develop a real love for reading. It's a lost art today. People don't want to read any longer today. 
I've challenged some of the younger people upstairs to uh, begin reading and reporting to me on what they've discovered. Give me a little book report. First book I've asked them to read is uh, Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm by Philip Keller. And we'll go on from there. But reading is so important. What else do you know about Paul? I'm sorry? He had to be married. Now, we, don't, we conclude that he was. Why do we conclude that he had to be married? Because he was a Pharisee. Being a Pharisee, you had to be married, and you had to have children. And so we conclude that Paul was married, had children. And when he converted to Christianity, when he, Jesus became his Messiah, his Lord and Savior, he lost his family. But he gained everything, didn't he? Yeah. What else do you know about Saul? I'm sorry? Well, I'll get to that in a moment, chapter 9. That's right. But what do you know about the person, Saul? Big follower of the law, of the Pharisees and the strictness of the law, blameless, he said, right? He was born a Jew, born where? Tarsus. Tarsus was in the region of? Specifically with the Bible states. It doesn't say Turkey. It's important. Cilicia. Cilicia. Why is that important? Because there was a group of people from the synagogue of the freemen. And some of them were from Cilicia, who came against the early church, and they were the persecutors of the early church. And so Paul would have been of that synagogue of the freemen. What did that mean? Synagogue of the freemen. Come on, do you remember? All right, let's go back to six weeks ago. (laughs) Synagogue of the freemen were those Jews who were born Roman citizens, free citizens in Rome. And Paul was one of them, right? He was born a free citizen. His nationality was, uh, his father's nationality was Roman. That necessity was a Jew, right? What else do you know about Paul? He was a tent maker by trade, you know. And if you had a male child, you had to make sure that three things happened to that child in his life. First of all, at eight days of old, ouch, right? Why, why was that required? To show his identification that he belonged to God, that he was of the fathers of Israel, right? Then the second thing you made sure you taught your son was? The Torah. The Torah, the law and the prophets, all that was in the Old Testament. And then the third thing you made sure you taught your son? A trade. Why? The Torah would keep him holy, the trade would keep him tired. Keep him out of mischief, right? And so Paul, as a young man, he learned the trade of tent making. And that was very popular in the city of Tarsus where he grew up. Probably around 13 years of age when he made his what? Bar mitzvah. What is that? That's when you become a son of the law, the son of the Torah. Now at 13 years of age, boys and girls, bat mitzvah, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah for the girls, bar mitzvah for the boys, they were required to know God's word. And to live the same and to share it. So they were completely responsible. Now their parents weren't. Anybody in here under 13? Nope. So it's your responsibility to know the word of God, to do the word of God, to share the word of God, right? It's no longer your parents' responsibility, is it, Danny? I can pick on you because we're buddies. No, but it's our responsibility individually. And so when he had accomplished his training as far as his occupation, when as a tent maker, at 13 years of age, his father, his parents, wanted to make sure he was well-schooled in Hebraism, ancient the religion of the Jews, and Phariseeism in particular. And so that's when he would have been sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. That's what happened to him. What else do you know about Paul? 
Oh, boy, yeah. We'll get into that, too. He was a chief persecutor. We see, and as we introduced to him in chapter 7 and verse 58, as he consented in, to the death of Stephen and holding the clothes of those who stoned him, then we go down into verse 8. It says, now, now this Saul was consenting to the death at that time, and a great persecution arose at the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem ministering there. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. As for Saul, verse 3, chapter 8, what does it say? He made havoc. What's that word, havoc? It's like what? Like a wild boar. How many have been boar hunting? Anybody hunting boar? You get any luck? You shoot a boar? No, you don't want any of that pig fat, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you missed a couple? Well, wild boars, you know, I mean, they can raise havoc at a farm, can't they? What do they do? They root out all of the plants right down to the and they devour them, right? So there's nothing left. Does that sound like a pig? <laughs> but they devour them to where there's nothing left. This is the word that's being described here of Saul and his hatred, his persecution of the early church, rooting it out like a wild boar. Desiring to destroy it completely. It's amazing. We learned that once he was converted, what happened after that? Look at chapter 9 for a minute. Go there. We see the conversion of Paul in chapter 9. We're going we're to probably cover the first one, two, three verses. I don't know. Uh, we'll see how far we get. But in verse 31 of chapter 9, after his conversion, what does it say? Then the churches throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had... And were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comforts of the Holy Spirit, they were multiple. Can you imagine this one man? How significant, how important it was that God was going to select this one man to be the apostle to the Gentiles. That this man's conversion was going to change world history. You understand that? There is no greater evangelist in all the world than the apostle Paul. There's no greater discipler in all the world than the apostle Paul. What a gifted teacher, what a gifted rabbi, what a gifted writer. Oh, what a gift he's been to us, isn't he? Yeah. They say that the church is a gift from God. Is that right? The church is a gift from God? You get some Christmas gifts this week, this year? Yeah, church is a gift from God, but it requires assembly. <laughs> you get it? The church is a gift from God, but it requires assembly, Okay which many have forgotten or forsake now. Isn't it, good to, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day? Isn't it? Yeah, no better place to be, right? Yeah, anyway, what else do you know about this apostle, Paul, this man, Saul, chief persecutor, tutored by the great Gamaliel, right? Extensive education, not only in Hebrew, but what else was he schooled in? The philosophy of the Greeks, right? He, he knew quite a bit about Greek philosophy, Philosophia. What does that mean? Philosophia. Phileo, Sophia. Love of wisdom. Philosophy. Philosophia. Philosophy. Love of wisdom. Now, when you really become a lover of wisdom, the wisdom that you'll find is true. The only true wisdom in the world comes from God through His. Yeah. Who's that great English philosopher who became a, a Christian, converted to Christianity? C.S. Lewis. See, he was a philosophy professor, and through his study of philosophy, or the love of wisdom, he became a Christian. 
Paul, great philosopher, understood, understood the theology of the Jews, the Hebrews, understood the philosophy of the Greeks. Chief persecutor, as we said, of the Christian church. But by grace, by grace he became sovereign grace, amazing grace. By grace alone he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. We're going to see that in chapter 9. He's going to rehearse this again in chapter 22. He's going to state it again in chapter 26. And throughout the epistles of Paul, whether it's Philippians, or we go to Thessalonians, or we go to 1 Timothy, we're going to see Paul is always wanting to share with people the conversion, the transformation that took place in his life. This is my story. Right? Did you sing that? This is my song. Right? Aren't you, I, can't, I, I can sing every single morning for the salvation that my Savior has brought into my life through his amazing sovereign grace. Yeah, by grace, a Christian. Uh, calling, calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles to be a preacher. He was a great missionary and church planter, wasn't he? Yeah, oh, and what a, what a gifted writer. God had to put him in jail so he could settle down long enough where he could start writing the epistles that Paul shared with us. How many of the books, of the, how many books are in the New Testament? 27, of which, how many did Paul write? How many? 13, 13 for certain, I believe 14, I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We can see great evidence for that fact. But 14 out of 27 books, what a prolific writer. How the Holy Spirit used him, you know, we have recorded for us the Gospels. What are they? Yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are called? Synoptics, because they're similar. But John, John's different in that 90% of John is new material that you won't find in the synoptics. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. But the Gospels simply tell us what Jesus both did and taught, right? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, taught us what Jesus did and taught. Thank God for the Apostle Paul and the 14 books that he penned. Why? Because they tell us what it all, what it all means. Yeah, even Peter declares that, doesn't he? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. So what else do we know? Um, what happened to him after his conversion? After his conversion. Yeah, he was blinded, and, that, and we're going to see all of this, and Ananias came to lay hands upon him to receive the Holy Spirit. Well, what happened to him right after that? What you said. He, he was gone for three years, went to Jerusalem, gone again for at least, at least 10 plus years of preparation before Paul was really used as an apostle to the Gentiles. 10 plus years. Listen, beloved, I, I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, but I, I know a lot of, a lot of folks, they, they just get saved, and boy, they just can't wait to get out there and serve God. But sometimes you know enough to be, but not enough to be. It's, it's true. And so you've got to allow yourself that time to really receive of the Lord. Now, we can always evangelize, can't we? You, you can be a brand new babe in Christ, and you can evangelize. You can share the gospel. Hey, want to get you saved. You saved, Caleb? Saved from what? From me talking to you? From me harassing you? What would you save from, Caleb? Hell, the wrath of God. That's exactly right. I'm saved from God, by God, to God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? 
Yeah, yeah. All right. So what else? All right, let's talk about Paul's. Uh, he was a tent maker by trade. We said that. Okay. How about Paul's physical appearance? Have you ever read anything about what Paul looked like? <laughs> Sinfully ugly. <laughs> I'm sorry? Don Knotts. Consider, think, about, think about Don Knotts, but with his eyes very close together, one big eyebrow across his forehead, bow-legged, squeaky voice, right? I mean, a, a physical appearance, you'd say, who? What? That is the man who's going to shake up the world? Wow. Wow. His conversion. How does he understand? How do you explain all of that? What happened to this man, Saul? And so Saul, who thought he was a big man of the tribe of Benjamin, hmm, named after the first king, well, God said, no, you're not Saul. You're Paul, little man, we little man. But I'm going to use you in such a mighty way. How God can use the least of us, right, to confound the wisest. Is that not true? Yeah, well, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But look at chapter 9 now. We see this persecution that has taken place. Previous to this, who got saved? The Ethiopian eunuch. The, now remember, this, this Ethiopian, all by grace, all by the Spirit of God, we see the Spirit of God continually in the text, leading Philip, leading this man, leading them into the Word, bringing the salvation, because what had taken place was this man had gone to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage, maybe sent by his queen, the queen of Ethiopia, and he was her treasurer, and so there was something about him that brought him into a hopeless condition. What was that? Being a eunuch. And why was that a hopeless condition for him? Okay, but what else? He couldn't go to the temple. He can't worship God. He's outside of a worship of God, outside of a communion with God, outside of fellowship with God because he was a eunuch. Deuteronomy explains that for us. So this man went in to Jerusalem Hopeless, confused, distressed, empty. Did you feel that way before you came to the Lord? I did. I did. You know the tragedy? He got into this religious community, the, the religious Mecca epicenter of Hebraism, and he left empty, hopeless, depressed, distressed. The same way he came in, he left. That should never happen. But you know how, that, how often that happens in religious circles? Because they're not looking for the true answer, the true fulfillment of life. John's, John Burnett's father got saved last week. Hallelujah. How old is he? 81 years old. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Now, John, John's father was, was following Buddhism because he, he was looking for peace. And what he said to John last week was, I've been looking for peace all my life and haven't been able to find it until now. He's found it in Christ. Oh, for the first time in his life, he thought he was a good poison. Who's a good poison? Nobody, no, no, none good. No, not one. No one seeks after God. How many might that be? Yeah, no one, no one. But he came to the realization the other night, crying out to his son, I'm a sinner with such deep regret. 
but recognizing that Christ is the Savior and then the joy that entered his heart and his life. And as he said in his own words, I looked for peace my whole life, and now I found it. Is that not true? Yeah, this Ethiopian was looking for peace. He didn't find it in Jerusalem. He didn't find it among the religionists, did he? And the religious rituals. Oh, but as he left, God had another plan for him. God was going to turn him 180, wasn't he? And the Holy Spirit sent Philip. The Holy Spirit told Philip to overtake the horses to go down to Gaza, which is desert, etc. It said, you know the rest of the text. And wow, salvation is of the Lord. Amen? Yeah. And this man from Ethiopia, he was from what son of Noah? This man from Ethiopia was from what son of Noah? Him. Him. And now in chapter 9, we're going to look at Paul and his conversion, and he's from what son of Noah? Shem. And then in a few weeks, we'll go into chapter 10. It's going to take a while to get through 9, but as we go to chapter 10, we're going to discover Cornelius is from what son of Noah? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Isn't that amazing? The three men that represent the world. For God so loved that he gave. Right? Hmm. Interesting. All right. So we saw that Paul was raising havoc in the church, rooting it out, trying to destroy it singly. Why would have Paul have such a deep hatred and resentment for Christianity, for Messianic Hebraism? Because there wasn't Christianity as we understand it today, right? It was when Jews were coming to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what we mean by Messianic Hebraism. And so why would Paul have such a hatred there? So it is a cult, this Nazarene heresy. And now it was being spread among the Hellenists. And, was, and so now he asked for letters to go to where? Wait a minute, that's outside of Judea. It's, uh, he surely would not go to Samaria, but it wasn't in the area of, of Galilee. Where was Damascus at this point? Syria, just north of Galilee, outside the land of Israel, to the north and to the east, Damascus. Hmm. Many of the Jews... Believing Jews had escaped to Damascus to escape the persecution that was taking place by their own brethren, by the other Jews. It, I was reading that in 66 AD, you know what happened in Damascus? No? Good, I'll tell you. 20,000 Christians, Jewish Christians, were murdered in the city of Damascus, 66 AD. But Paul had such a hatred for this, what he believed to be a Nazarene heresy that was corrupting Judaism. Strict observance of the law, right? Chapter 9, now Saul, still breathing threats. Breathing threats. He wasn't exhaling threats, he was breathing threats. What does that mean? He was taking in all this hatred, this malice. It was, it was, it was in permeating his entire system Oh, boy. You know what happens when you have hatred and resentment for someone? And you carry that bitterness and that resentment inside you? You become what? Gollum. Yeah. Listen, it's like drinking poison and expecting somebody else to die. <laughs> when you have bitterness towards someone else, right? Listen, we, we, as God has forgiven us, should we not forgive all others? Should we not? But boy, there's a hatred that can be developed on the inside of you, breathing it in, taking it in, becoming who you are. 
bitterness, hatred, resentment, anger. It so filled Paul. It was a poison in Paul's life. But he was expecting others to die when he himself was dying inside. Hmm? Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. And so, if he found any who were of the way, whether women, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, uh, you, there's some other writings of the period beyond the Bible that says that the Apostle Paul was responsible for at least 10,000 Christians being imprisoned or persecuted or put to death. He consented to the death of Stephen. He told him, give him the thumbs up. Go ahead, stone him to death. But I believe that sermon, the longest sermon in the Bible, that sermon that Stephen gave just before he died, had such an effect on Paul's life. I believe it haunted him until he really came to know the Savior. But nonetheless, he was after asking letters from the high priest, and the high priest had such a relationship with the king there in Damascus, Artetus, and so he gave them consented to allow him to come into Damascus and apprehend these people, to make an extradition, to send them back to Jerusalem for trial, or to persecute them there, or to put them to death. That's what he desired. And he called it the way. Why did they call it the way? It was being sarcastic. Because the truth claims were that Jesus was the way, the only way. The way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through Christ. Is that true? Are you certain of that? Would you be able to present an apologetic for that? Because in our world today, even, listen, listen to me. The majority of people who call themselves Christian. Let me go a little further. The majority of people who say they're born again claim that other ways to God are legitimate. When you ask the question, what about good people of other faiths? There are no good people. And there's only one true faith. You understand that? But they don't understand that. I hope you do. There's a lot of confusion out there about what the gospel is, and there's a lot of confusion about the fact that there's only one way. And so that's why they would call it the way. Now, there's a, there's a religious cult today called the way. Do you know what that's about? No? I'm sorry? No? I was working for General Electric at the time in New York, and, and uh, it was pretty obvious if you walked into my office, I was a Christian. I had a Bible on my desk. I had uh, Corinthians 7.14, Chronicles 7.14 up on the wall. I mean, I, you know, and two things. If you walked in my office, you knew there were two things I loved dearly. Jesus and my family. You know, that's how you, not golf, not boating, not, you know, motorcycling. I mean, Jesus and my family, okay? That was one and two, right? And it's, and it's Jesus first, before my family. Does that bother you? It shouldn't. It's got to be Jesus first, beloved. But nonetheless, this guy came in and he said, hey, we're going to have a prayer group on, uh, on Tuesday mornings. Would you like to join us? And I said, well, who are you? Uh, I'm so-and-so, and I'm from the way. I said, no, I won't join you. Well, do you pray? I said, yes, I'm a praying man. Well, why won't you do it? Because I can't pray with you. Why can't you pray with me? Because you're in a cult. A cult is a false religious system. And who, where is the error in all the cults? On what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ. The way is, a, is an offshoot of the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? You know who Jehovah's Witnesses are. Is that Christianity? No. No. There's such confusion today. And anybody watch the uh, Mormon Tabernacle Choir this Christmas and their Christmas presentation? No? 
Have you ever watched it? Anybody ever watched the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in the Christmas presentation? Boy, oh boy, if you, didn't, if you really didn't know the truth, it would surely confuse you, wouldn't it? You'd think, this is absolutely wonderful. And you know, unfortunately, there are some people that have a huge platform, global platform, that are declaring that Mormons are Christians. Are Mormons Christians? Absolutely not. Please, please be discerning. Be able to determine that there is only but one way. It was derogatory then. They were being facetious. Oh, well, one way. Jesus, your, your way is this man who was executed on the cross. That's the way? Yeah, that's the way. He came and died for me so that I could live for him. Amen? Yeah. So he was of the way, whether men or women, that he might bind them to Jerusalem. And as, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, let's talk about the light for a minute. Where did this light first originate? Genesis chapter 1, go there. Genesis chapter 1, that's where this light comes from. I would be remiss. I'm sorry. Would you do something for me? Would you turn around and say hi to Gail? This Gail's homesick. Hi, Gail. Love you, dear. We miss you. Yeah. Alex is warming your seat for you. <laughs> and if, listen, if you're not feeling well at all, what should you do? Why? For the sake of others, for the love of others, for the preciousness of others. Now, she's not contagious anymore, but she still has a cough. And I said, I, I, you know, you, you need to stay home this morning. Just get in your pajamas, make a cup of tea, and you and Snickers listen to me. You know? <laughs> Maybe for the first time she'll listen to me. What do you think? <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Then God said... And literally in the Hebrew, it is light be. This is before the sun or the moon or the universe, the stars was even created. So who is this that comes forward now? And it's not created. Simply manifest. Who was it? Jesus. Go to John's Gospel, chapter 1. When you're in John's Gospel, look up. You bring your Bibles to church. You're extraordinary. You know how unusual that is today? Yeah, very thankful for that. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Who's this light? Jesus. Jesus the light of Genesis 1, the light of John 1. Go to John 8 for a moment. John chapter 8, same gospel, chapter 8. where the woman is caught in adultery. 
Adultery going to send you to hell? No. Fornication going to send you to hell? No. Drug addiction going to send you to hell? Lying? Stealing? What sends a person to hell? Denying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Once you come to him, your life will change. He, he cleanses you from the inside out. But what condemns a man or a woman to hell is their denial of Jesus Christ as being the Savior or the light that has come into the darkness. The light and the life and the love of God who alone brings life. He's the light in Genesis 1. He's the light in John 1. He's the light here in this woman who was just absolutely immersed in darkness. And Jesus says to her in verse 11, who condemned woman in verse 12, uh, the end of verse, let's see, in the end of verse 10, he says, woman, where are your accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a horrible trick to play upon her. How could she not sin anymore? Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. Yes. There's not a command of the Bible that God is not willing to empower you to obey. Now, completely free from sin, no, but he's talking about that particular sin that she was known for. What was that particular sin, that besetting sin in her life? Adultery. Sexual immorality. And God wants to free her of that. All she had to do is be willing. Go and sin no more, my dear, and I'll give you the power over the sin that has so captivated you, that darkness that has consumed you, right? Look what it says. He says, and Jesus spoke to them again, saying, what? I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So what happened to Paul? The light. The only true light and life and love that can produce the life that God desires is Jesus. Have you come to the light? We're sons of the day and not of the darkness, Paul would say to the Thessalonians. And because we're sons of the day, we know exactly what's taking place. And we know the season that we are in because we can discern the signs of the time. Can't we? Yeah. Look at the text. Chapter 9 of Acts. A light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Hmm. What does it mean when their name is emphasized twice? Mary, Mary, don't cling to me. Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Saul, Saul. Something very important, and there's a rebuke coming, right? When he nends twice, Saul, Saul. There's a rebuke coming now to Saul from the Lord. And he's referring to him as Saul, not Paul. Hmm. Hasn't been converted yet. Why are you persecuting me? Wait a minute, where was Jesus? Jesus is resurrected. He ascended. He's in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Why would he say, why are you persecuting me? When did we see you hungry, Lord, and feed you? In prison and visited you sick, and we nursed you, Lord. When, when did any of these things happen? And he said, if you've done this unto the least of these, my brethren, the body of Christ, you've done it unto me. Now, I, I try to make a very strong distinction to you between Christendom, Christendom and the body of Christ. They're not the same thing. 
when we look at the kingdom program, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the five aspects to the kingdom program, the last one, well, the last one's actually the messianic millennial kingdom, but the one before that is the mystery kingdom. And the mystery kingdom is explained for us in Matthew 13. And what is it comprised of? Believers and make-believers, true doctrine and false doctrine, right? True growth and abhorrent monstrous growth. That's the contradiction here. And, and if you're going to sum up that mystery kingdom, you'd sum it up in one word. What's that word? Christendom. Christendom. And that's what we experience today. But there's a di- listen, there's a difference between Christendom and the body of Christ. You want to make certain that you are part of the body. Because if you're part of the body, you're one with Jesus. And if you're one with Jesus and I'm one with Jesus, then what's the reality? We're one with each other. We're family. You're, you're more my family. You're more my brothers and sisters than my biological family will ever be if they're not in Christ. Do you understand that? I've shared with you before how thankful I am. I, I so miss those, those opportunities that I had as a child growing up when all my family got together on Sundays. Every Sunday was a fiesta, right? A feast. Every Sunday. All, everybody had to be at Grandpa's house, Alfonso. And Alfonso would come to the table. He always was dressed in his nice shirt, and he had a tie on, and everybody had to be there. All of his sons and daughters, all of their wives and husbands, and, and all of their children had to be at Papa's table on a Sunday. Where does Papa want you on a Sunday? At his table with all of his children, gathered together. What a glorious thing it is. And I shared with you how one day I was just lamenting all of that and a just wonderful experience in my childhood, but I have it all over again with you. Isn't that wonderful? All of us gathered together, brothers and sisters, celebrating our father, enjoying a meal together. Yeah. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And what's the word Lord here? Kurios, what does it mean? Supreme. The Bekor. The Prototokos. The Numero Uno. The Godfather, right? Nobody higher. The Colossians, Prototokos. The, the uh, Old Testament, Bekor, right? There's nobody higher than God. Not, not in birth order, but in position. Is that not true? He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. There's no higher name in all the universe. Why are you persecuting me? And what's Saul's response? Who are you, Lord? Well, that's a good thing for everyone to seek to know. Who is true, truly the Lord, the God of heaven and earth? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, the rest of that verse isn't in the older manuscripts. It's where it belongs over around verse in uh, chapter 26, as Paul is rehearsing his conversion for the third time in verse 14. But they inserted it here for some reason. But again, it belongs where it is in chapter 26, verse 14. Hard for you to kick against the goads. But what did that mean? Yeah, so you're kicking against the goads. What's, what's the problem? What's the ox doing? He's resisting. He's rebelling. You know, you wouldn't do that, would you? No. So you, you, you park in the back, you sit in the front, right? <laughs> we all kick against the goads, don't we? Why? Because we're rebels. We're rebels. There's rebel, rebels rebel within us, you know? As soon as somebody gives us a rule, we want to, yeah, yeah, we don't want to follow it. 
No, but, but when we're being Christ-like, we'll follow every rule, every example. Kicking against the goads, the ox, when they would try to drive them on, they didn't want to go. They didn't want to pull up plow. They didn't want to go through that load and, and, and go through that toil and all that work. And so they prod them with this iron stake, and that would keep them moving. And so that's what Jesus was indicating in chapter 26, that Paul was doing kicking against the goads, his whole life kicking against the goads. And it's not smart. Why? Ouch! 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 <laughs> How many times do you have to bang your head against a wall before you realize it's not smart, it hurts? You know. It's not smart to go against God's perfect plan for your life. It hurts, doesn't it? Or am I the only one that's experienced that? Every, every time I decide to do it my way, and Blue Eyes found out it was, his way was the wrong way, wasn't it? He's, he's gone now, but... He's discovered that your way is not good. Who was that? Yeah, yeah. No. Perfect submission leads to what? We, we read, we sang it this morning. What was the title of that song? Blessed Assurance. Who wants Blessed Assurance? All right, some of you don't. It's okay. You, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, in some ways, it's like Burger King. You get it your way, you know. But who wants perfect submission? I mean, blessed assurance. I'm ahead of myself. And how does blessed assurance happen? How does it come? Yeah. Just submit to God. Father knows best, and his ways are always working out so beautifully in our lives. But we kick against the goal. Don't do that. It's foolish. It was foolish for Paul. It's foolish, foolish for you and I to do that. And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what did he say? Lord? Now, isn't that amazing? This guy does a complete 180. He's persecuting the church. He hates Jesus. He hates Christians. He hates the name of Christ. And he's at war with the church, with Christians, with Messianic Judaism. And all of a sudden now he's submitted. He's surrendered. Now, listen, that's what happens when a person comes to the light and is apprehended by that light, that love, that life of Jesus Christ. There's a submission why, why would I not submit to him who loves me so? Do you understand he loves you more than you love yourself? Do you understand he has more good in mind for you than you have for yourself? Do you understand that? So why would I not submit to him? And this is, a, this is an amazing thing to me. This is a tremendous conversion of him. You know, this is miraculous. But God has his purposes and his intentions for this man. But he comes to the place where he recognizes that he is Lord. And I need to submit to him as Lord, as master, as savior, as friend. What would you have me to do? How many Christians really ask that question? The question they ask is, Lord, here's what I'd like you to do. <laughs> is that not true? Yeah. And as soon as their expectation or their desire isn't met, what happens? Well, it may, it may work for you. It's not working for me. You know. No, because there hasn't been a change. There hasn't been that conversion. 
There hasn't been that change of heart. And this is all else. This is all by sovereign, amazing grace. What direction was Paul going in? I mean, he was full head of steam destroy, trying to destroy what God was doing, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't just an atheist. He wasn't just saying, well, I don't believe in this, this Christ and this Christianity. And, and, you know, yeah, it's good for you. Fine, fine, fine. No, no, no. He was adamantly, very aggressively, with all the power that he had, trying to destroy it, rooting it out. And then all of a sudden, the light came into his life, the love, the life of Christ, and everything changed that moment in time. And he does a complete 180 to the Lord. Lord, I surrender. What would you have me to do? Wow. Isn't that amazing? Now, did that happen to you? When you came to the light? Now, now I understand. You know, none of us have had a dramatic conversion the way the Apostle Paul did. Anybody been struck by the light and see him and hear his voice? Your father, yeah. <laughs> yeah, your father said he saw this brilliant light, white light, didn't he? Paul tells us later on as he's rehearsing his testimony and what had taken place that the light shone brighter than the noonday sun in the Middle East. Wow. And that light just blinded him for the moment, right? Amazing. The real evidence of salvation is the transformation that takes place in the heart where suddenly you, you're no longer this rebel but now you're a submitted servant. Lord, what would you have me to do? Whatever it is you request, Lord. And when we get to heaven, the only thing we can say is, Lord, I, I did everything that you commanded me to do. Nothing more. I, I wasn't creative. I didn't, did, no, no. I, ju I just followed your plan for my life according to your word. Confessed. What's that word, confess? What is it? Homo legale. And what does it mean? To agree with God, to agree with his word. And how? Just an intellectual agreement? No, no. The way in which I live my life shows that I'm in agreement with God's word. I confess him. You confess Jesus before men, he'll confess you before the fathers in heaven. It's very important that you understand that. Paul is confessing. Lord, what would you have me to do? And, and the Lord says to him in verse 6, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you should do, or what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by his hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Isn't this amazing? Now, Paul was on horseback. And he had letters from the high priest. And he had these, uh, these, these temple guards and, and soldiers with him. And what was he going to do? Apprehend everyone who was of the way. Persecute them, murder them, drag them back to Jerusalem for trial, put them in jail, make an example of them. Boy, he thought he was high and mighty, didn't he? And now how, how, is, he, how is he being led into that city of Damascus? Not the way he expected. How is he being led? Hmm? By the hand. Not on horseback anymore. Not blinded. Oh. John will use your dad as an example again. Physically, he could see, but he was so spiritually blinded for so long. And that was the Apostle Paul. 
had physical sight, but spiritually blind. Now he's apprehended by the light of God, the love of God, the life of Jesus Christ. And now he's blind to the things of this world. He's blind to what he said, so embraced before. Oh, but now he's never seen more clearly spiritually. Did that happen to you? Well, you know, that's what put your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. What? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Precisely what happened to him. Did you become blind? to the things of this world, to the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eye, the pride of life. And now, now you see the truth. You want to live in harmony with the Lord? What happened here? How do you explain what happened to this man? Well, Paul gives us some understanding in his writings of what happened to him as he was apprehended by the sovereign Grace, the amazing grace of, and this is amazing. This is an amazing testimony that the devil became a saint. He was a devil who became a saint. Turn with me to First Corinthians for a moment, and we'll just look at a couple of Paul's writings here to try to explain how he understood this. What do you think was going on for three days and three nights? He didn't eat or drink anything. What do you think was going on? Repentance, he was praying. What else? What's, what's repentance? What's the word repentance? Metanoia, what does it mean? Change your thinking, change your mind. Repentance is changing your mind. Confessing is now filling your mind with the things of God's word so that you can live in a harmony with his word. God has given us this wonderful mechanism we call the conscience. Now you parents and grandparents, listen to me, it's so important that you inform your children's conscience. They come in with a conscience where they basically know right from wrong. But what do they do? Wrong. Did you have to teach them to lie? You have to teach them to be selfish? You have to teach them to steal somebody else's toys? No, that comes natural to them, doesn't it? No, but you have to inform their conscience that that is wrong, and there's no future in that. There's no blessed hope in that, okay? And so as you inform their conscience, their conscience is a wonderful mechanism that either accuses them or affirms them, right? Yeah, it's so important. And so what has happened to Paul now? His conscience is made aware because he, listen, he has a great understanding of the Old Testament and the promises with regard to the Old Testament, but he wasn't making all of the connections. And now all of a sudden he's connecting. For three days and three nights, he's abandoned to everything but God. And Jesus Christ is helping him connect all the dots. And what a picture it presents eventually when it gets all done. Wow. Has God done that for you? He's still doing it for me. He's still helping. I'm connecting all the dots. And it all makes, of course, of course, of course, it makes all the sense in the world what God is doing, doesn't it? Paul records here, as he was at three days and three nights trying to process all of this, and the Holy Spirit is so guiding him. But he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, and he says, where did I go? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Okay. Now, listen, if you're really spiritual, you'll know exactly where I was going to go. 
<laughs> a good friend of mine, a good friend of mine was pastoring a church in Fayetteville. His name is David Shirley. And he's a wonderful man. But they were holding Bible studies in different folks' house throughout the city in Fayetteville. My son was up there stationed at the time. And uh, there were times when Pastor David wouldn't tell anybody where they're meeting. And he'd say, well, you know, if you're, I mean, if you're really in tune, you'd know where we're meeting. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. We're not like Elijah. Elijah was amazed when God didn't tell him something, right? We're amazed when God does tell us something. Hmm? Yeah. So where was I? Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, verse 26. Paul says, for you see your calling, brethren. Who called Paul? Who are you, Lord? What would you have me to do? And he's going to, he's going to give the answer to that question. He's going to tell him he's called to be an apostle unto the Gentiles, and I must show you the many things you must suffer. Oh, wow. Boy, that's foreign to our theology today, isn't it? The many things you must suffer. Now, you know, I see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. He thought he was mighty, but he realized now how weak he really was. Wise, no, 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 how foolish, how foolish could I have been. Yes, he has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Who does this describe? Wait a minute. Now, who is he describing? All of us. Is the mayor here? How many senators are represented here? The important people in Greenville. Where are you? Well, they're down at first press. <laughs> I make no apology for that either. Yes, God has chosen those things which are not to bring to nothing, the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So who did all of this? How was Paul saved? Because he was seeking God? Because he was seeking the Messiah? Is that how it happened? He was apprehended by grace. Sovereign, amazing grace. And he did a complete 180. Paul explains that in more detail for us in the epistle to the Ephesians. Turn there. Turn there. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, like Colossians, uh, the first half of the book is all about what God has done. It's theological. The last half is always the practical. Therefore, how should we behave? What's our responsibility? So the first three chapters of Ephesians, like the first two chapters of Colossians, all that God has done. And therefore, how should we respond to that? What would you have me to do? Surrender. Submission. Blessed assurance through what? Perfect submission. Perfect submission. All right, let's go to chapter 1. Uh, Paul is describing the blessedness of those who have God as their Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow, let's look at some of these blessings he's talking about. What's the first one here? He chose us in him. He chose us in him. Who chose us in who? God the Father chose us in Christ. 
in Christ, before the foundations of the world. That's when you were chosen. Look at verse 5. Having predestined. predestined us to adoption. Anybody adopted here? Anybody else? What does that mean to you? When you read that, that he's, he's adopted us, chosen us for adoption. What does that mean to you? Yeah. Now, you, you know that if your parents had a choice now knowing you, they probably wouldn't have had you. <laughs> and that's in the natural, OK? You know, hey, I, I was brought into this world to give my parents anxiety and a prayer life. <laughs> anxiety, yes. The prayer life never came. <laughs> and I tell Gail now, I'm God's gift for aggravation for you and many others. <laughs> oh, but adopted means you were wanted. Just as you are, you were wanted. God, knowing everything about me from beginning to end, he knows all of my past, he knows my present, he knows all of my future, yet he chose me anyway to be in him and predestined me through adoption. What does that mean, predestined? Predetermined to choose you, right? Wow. Having predestined us to adoption, according to the good pleasure, what does it say? Of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, and he has made us accepted in the beloved. Who did that? He did. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of his sins by his blood, according to the riches of his grace. He made the bound towards us in all wisdom. He revealed to us the mystery of his will. What's the mystery of his will that Paul is discovering? God has chosen Jews and Gentiles. The body of Christ is comprised of everyone who would come to him. But all the Father has called to come unto me, Jesus said in John 6, will come unto me. And of all that come unto me, I lose. Hmm, interesting. Yes, the mystery of his will and his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, in the, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together all in one. Who's doing this? Verse 11, what does it say? In him also we have obtained being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will to the praise of his glory. Verse 17, and God, the, and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of him. Who gave us all of that? Who opened up Paul's eyes so he could see? Yes. And to know the hope of his calling, and that's what Paul would discover. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? And what is that power? That same power that raised Jesus, that resurrected Jesus when he was dead, and then raised him up into heaven and seated him in heavenly places. You know, that's exactly what he, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has done for us. Look at the text. Look at, uh, let's see, go to chapter 2. But God who is rich in mercy, I'm verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were what? What were you? What was Paul? Dead. You know the word here? Necros. What does it mean? Corpse. Corpse. Lord, no, he's been dead for three days. He stinketh. That's who we were. Dead. 
but you were dead in your trespasses. But what did he do? Just as he made Christ alive, resurrected Christ, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised up together and made sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself, not of you. It is a gift of God, not of works, not of you. Least anyone should boast. For we are all his poema, his masterpiece, his workmanship, and how much the apostle Paul, what a miracle of salvation. Wow. It took 10 plus years for the brothers in Jerusalem to get used to the fact that he got saved. They didn't believe it. No, there's no way possible it could have happened. Barnabas had to be the one to come and tell them, it's real, it's true. My family still thinks I'm a deacon. They can't even believe I'm a pastor. (laughs) I'm serious. I go home and he's still, you know, he looks the same, sounds the same, but he ain't the same person. That's not the same man. Thank God. Hmm? Go with me to Philippians. Philippians. Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 3. Paul, processing all of this that happened to him and trying to explain it to you and I. Finally, brethren, chapter 3, verse 3. Excuse me. Chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 1. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write to you the same things is not tedious, but it is, it is safe. Paul constantly was rehearsing what happened to him. And listen, the greatest, the greatest testimony that we have is, is what God has done in our lives. Even if you don't have a grasp, maybe you're, you know, my wife says, you know, I can't remember the scriptures the way you do. It doesn't matter. Just keep reading the scriptures. Try to memorize the scriptures. And, and you, know, you, you know, everybody has a different basket, right? Consider your mind a basket. My basket seems to be pretty tightly weaved, okay? Where not much kind of falls through. I, I can remember a lot. Now, my wife, she's not so, it runs through. I said, but at the end of the day, what, what do you have? A clean basket. But what you do have, and what I so enjoy about my wife, I love you, Gail, because I love your heart. Your heart is wonderful. Your heart for the Lord. I'm the head. You're the heart. But when she shares her testimony and what Jesus has done for her, she does it with tears, and she does it with such joy. And the greatest testimony, the greatest evidence of the person of Jesus Christ coming into your life and mine is our personal testimony. Did you go from darkness to light? Did you? The light, the life, the love of Christ. That's what Paul wanted everybody to know. That's what you and I should want to share with everyone. He says this, it is not tedious, but it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Talking about those Judaizers, trying to bring him into religiosity. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also could have had confidence in the flesh. Now he goes on to talk about how he was so prideful. If anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecution the church concerning righteousness which is of the law blameless wow what a religious guy he was someone was talking to me the other day in my neighborhood I was walking my dog and I said you know uh, well you're a religious person I said no I'm not Uh, you're a pastor aren't you I said yes but you're not a religious person I said no I'm a spiritual person Islam is a religion 
Mormonism is a religion. Shinto is a religion. I said, Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, my Savior. He dwells within me, and I in him. Big difference, isn't there? Paul had religion. Didn't have a relationship. Oh, but how everything changed. Look what he writes now. But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It was nothing. I gave up nothing. I gained everything. Everything. I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may attain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, to be conformed to his death, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You got it, Philippians? Timothy, let me tell you about this. Go to 1 Timothy. Anybody have a heading over verse 12 of the first chapter of 1 Timothy? Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Is that what you said? Okay, anybody else? What? The testimony of Paul. Okay, anybody else? What did you say? Glory to God for his grace. My, my Bible says, and obviously that's not in the original text, it's not chapters and verses in the original text. But nonetheless, mine says that, uh, where am I? Hmm. 112, thank you very much. I'm in the wrong book. <laughs> I'm a Thessalonians. I want to be in Timothy. Okay. I wonder it wasn't looking right, you know? Glory to God for his grace. Glory to God for his grace. Glory to God. For... No boasting. Well, I cannot boast and say, well, you know, I, I, I had an inclination for God. As a young boy, I, I was seeking God, and I found it. When I got, when I got saved in the 80s, right, everybody's wearing these buttons say, I found it. You found what? God was lost? And you had to find him? No. Who found who? Did God, God find the Ethiopian? Did God find Paul? Did God find you? He found me. Make no mistake about that. But look what Paul writes to Timothy. He wants Timothy to know this glorious grace, this sovereign grace of God at work in his life. And I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who, was who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ, Jesus Christ might show the long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Wow. Now, you don't have to agree with me. And it's okay. Because salvation is of the Lord. You're trusting the Lord. But I recognize at this stage in my life, after walking with him for 43 years, I have had very little to do with it. He did it all. 
He's the first cause of my salvation. He is the sustaining cause. He will be the completing cause. He has justified me. He is sanctifying me. He will glorify me. And I believe that with all my heart. And I can show you many more scriptures. Time won't allow it. And if you think you had any part to play in that, you're robbing him of his glory. You are boasting. Do you understand that? Paul said there is no room for boasting. That's my understanding. And you can disagree with me. I still love you anyway. And we'll agree to disagree agreeably. Because the essential thing is that you're trusting Christ for your salvation. And if you think you help get there, well, he'll straighten you out. Because he's going to tell you there's no boasting here. No. The way I liken my salvation, I had to dig up a couple of septic tanks last fall. Dirty business. You know that? Ooh. And, and, you know, I had, and I, I got the cover, and I got the cover off. Anthony, are you back there, Anthony? Is he in the front door? Huh? Yes. He's at the front door. Okay, Anthony was helping me. When we pulled the cover off, Anthony ran. <laughs> he couldn't, he couldn't, no, he couldn't stand the stink. It was making him sick. And I understand it. I mean, it would make you pass out. You know, he, away he went. That's the cesspool that we're in, beloved, in this world. And let me tell you what Jesus did. 1980, the summer of 1980, he reached down as far as he could in that cesspool, in that septic tank. Ah, I got something here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got something. And he pulled me out. And he said, look at this, Holy Spirit. <laughs> Whoo, stinketh. Get them. Clean them up. <laughs> that, now, that, listen, that's the best description I can give you of what happened to me. Paul says, I am the chief of stinkers. Do you understand that? What abideth in me, Paul said, is no. Is it true? Then stop thinking there is. Stop it. You're robbing God of his glory. And you're boasting. And there's no boast. Hmm. How does Paul end that little discourse with Timothy? David, you want to come on up here? Do you know this little song? Unto the king eternal, unto the king immortal, unto the king invisible, wise God. Now David's going to lead us in that chorus. Shall we stand? Amazing grace. God's sovereign grace. Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.